0: I'm Andrew Faust with Permaculture Perspectives. Today's podcast, I'm going to compare and contrast some of the ideas that I was hearing in Stephen Hawking's Genius series and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I want to start right off with saying that I was thoroughly unimpressed with how these academics were so invested in the notion that it made good, logical sense to be preparing for life on other planets, and creating a base on the moon. And they both, Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson, wanted to compel us to accept their viewpoint by waving around their academic degrees and telling us how impressed we should be by their cosmological education. When I would suggest to you that in fact those very things are why it is they do not have the capacity to recognize that the Earth is far more wondrous, far more mysterious, and far more powerful than they give it credit for. When you have what is called an abandonment relationship to your mother and your father, which is arguably the Earth and the sky on planet Earth, and you create this notion that what you can do is go create a space pod and move to another planet after you've destroyed your home planet is morally and ethically problematic. It begs many questions for our species because in fact if we can't do a good job here at home why does it stand to reason that we are suddenly going to get our act together and do a good job in some biodome on the moon or some concocted notion from Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles of going to move to where the canals and pyramids are on Mars. This is a bunch of utter scientific techno-fantasy nonsense that is being bandied about as if it's a good response to things like climate change, overpopulation, and clearly our species does not have the capacity to figure out how to live with how the Earth works And any responsible intellectual will be advocating for things like settlements on the moon and putting a great deal of effort into it. This is a very damaging and problematic opinion to be proselytizing on the platform of purported science. It's bad science to suggest that we should put great effort into a base on the moon when we are killing a viable planet that is right here in front of us. This begs many questions, primarily the one which I just outlined, which is that we have a responsibility to figure out how to live well where we are, because this is our home, and it is where we belong. I'd like to contrast that with a position and an opinion that is put forth by Thomas Berry in a book I've been enjoying called Under the Tough Old Stars. This book was given to me by one of my great mentors and teachers, Sandra Hurst, who started the school that I both graduated from and taught at for a decade. That school is called Upatinas. And Sandy gave me this book when I was enrolled in their teacher education program and a full time staff member at Upatinas because she knew that this was right up my alley and something that I would really appreciate. So this book is called Under the Tough Old Stars, Eco-Pedagogical Essays by David W. Hardeen, in which he gives some really excellent bite-sized quotes from Thomas Berry. Here's one that's particularly apropos this supposed good idea that Hawken and Tyson are rolling out in their much-listened-to podcast that any wise and informed and rational person must agree that due to the the fact that we are in ecological overshoot, we must therefore, you know, realistically be preparing for something like building a settlement on the moon or Mars. It is impossible to divorce the question of what we do from the question of where we are, or rather where we think we are, that no sane creature befouls its own nest is accepted as generally true. What we conceive to be our nest, and where we think it is, are therefore questions of the greatest importance. Here's another good quote along the lines of understanding limits, because another One of the great presuppositions for both of these thinkers and their premise that we should be preparing for life on Mars or on some other solar system was the notion that in fact there are no limits and that we can just imagine our way into some future fantasy scenario that transcends any sense of reason or rationale. That the human prerogative is unlimited that we must do whatever we have the power to do. What is lacking in such an assumption is the idea that humans have a place, and that this place is limited by responsibility on the one hand and by humility on the other. Further, Barry goes on to say, knowledge of these limits and how to live within them is the most comely and graceful knowledge that we have the most healing, and the most whole. And to be comely and graceful, this knowledge needs the arrival of the young, and the revivifying they bring to such knowing. Because we can do the impossible, we must understand the deep interrelations that inhere in the wholeness and health of language, and we must refuse that which might violate or overstep those limits, that which would turn litter into garbage. And this knowledge must be held with a delicateness and openness that allows the young to rise up and take issue with what we think we know of these matters. So this technocratic tendency to quickly ignore the complexity, the mystery, the beauty and the power of this planet and imagine that we have to abandon it and just move on because the evidence is in that we are destined to destroy the Earth itself is a misguided and psychologically damaged perspective to promulgate. And what's interesting is I'm finding many academics have this tendency to want to platform that they have it all figured out and Shouldn't we be impressed that they are basically cynically and catastrophically ignoring any potential for us to heal and restore the well-being of this planet and that in some way we should rally around them because of their intellectual vigor and its capacity to annihilate all capacity for hope? You know, I don't consider it very intellectually edifying to use your intelligence to create an argument for why we should be convinced that there is no hope, there is no optimism, and to give us this only option of trusting their presuppositions that our hope lies in actually being able to abandon the earth and go live somewhere else. This leaving psychology is a dysfunctional and unhealthy viewpoint that is very widespread throughout philosophical and intellectual circles, especially in the intellectuals of the Western world. And what I'm particularly stunned and dismayed and frankly very disappointed by is this tendency by people exhibited in Stephen Hawking and in Neil deGrasse Tyson of presenting their perspective as if it is inviolable because of their academic background, and wanting to make statements that are absolutist, extreme, and do not allow for much room for conversation or debate, but attempt to set a playing field for our imaginations that is very bleak, very dismal, and very monoculture and its mentality. It's either black or white. We're either going to save the day or the earth is going to die. And our only way to save the day is to go move to the moon. And won't that be wonderful? The only people who can possibly think that that's wonderful are people who haven't stepped outside recently and watched the moon rise or the sunset and have spent way too much time looking at their phone or Pinterest posts of beautiful nebulae in other galaxies and thinking that our goal is to go run away on some spaceship with these wonderfully intellectual cosmologists and watch TV till the end of our lives. Because the reality is that if you like watching the moon rise and the sunset, and listening to the birds and the waves and the wind and the leaves, the earth is our magical, mysterious, and majestic home, which I am thankful to say is simply waiting for her children to wake up and recognize her beauty, her wonder, and her power and begin to honor it and tap into it. I think it's interesting that Many people look to academics to answer questions like, what is our purpose and place in the universe? And I would like to suggest that often these academics are woefully out of touch with the practicalities of what goes into living in a non-technocratic world. Because the reality is academic institutions and the places that employ many of these professors are incredibly high-tech environments that completely and utterly disconnect people from the natural world in a very practical, psychological, and physiological sense. And so therefore, since they are held in the cozy bosom of the military-industrial complex, they really end up being apologists and advocates for a what I would call scorched-earth policy, under the igus of being forward-thinking for a you know poorly educated general public who can't be as smart and advanced as somebody with a PhD surely could be in terms of their capacity to turn around and give us a vastly oversimplified explanation of what our opportunities and possibilities are in the future. This perspective that basically stems from the viewpoint that the Earth is something we need to be ready to abandon, is something which is misguided and inaccurate. This planet is resilient. The Earth is, in my view, waiting for us to wake up as the dominator culture living in the G20 nations, dependent upon a consumer society syndrome of import-export economies, that we begin to extract ourselves from that by actually recognizing that the planetary processes of evolution are ancient and powerful. I wanted to share with you a reading that helps to inspire my understanding of more of the nuances, subtleties, and complexities to our evolutionary trajectory potentials, rather than bludgeoning something with homogeneity and monoculture mentalities that try to make some argument for an outlandish overextension of our environment and come up with some cockamamie idea like we're gonna all go live on the moon or Mars. So, this book is called Evolutionary History, it's written by Edmund Russell. And here he's talking about things that have happened that some of you may very well already be familiar with but may not have heard it put in this viewpoint of a recognition that the Earth is resilient, abundant, and revitalized by human acknowledgement of her limits, knowing our limits, knowing where they are, and living in ways that are wise, thoughtful, and attentive, show much more integrity than thinking that it's somehow a grand and smart idea to prepare for colonization of outer space. Size selection drove catches down in another way by selecting for and against certain behaviors. Traditionally, Going to sea for 18 months was a good strategy because it made salmon bigger than if they were to stay at home. A few salmon called jack came back a year earlier than normal and some called par never went to sea at all. Jack and par compe- competed poorly against big fish for spawning sites and mates. I'll read that again. Jack and par competed poorly against big fish for spawning sites and mates. By catching ocean-going salmon, however, fishers altered the odds. Ocean nets selected against fish that went to sea and grew large. Now Jack and Parr had as much chance at reproducing as the traditionalists who ventured out to sea, although they produced fewer and smaller offspring than did large fish. The number of size, The number and size of ocean-going salmon declined. This revision of the reviewed view becomes more persuasive when we find similar patterns elsewhere. Whitefish in North American freshwater lakes once supported commercial fishing. The average size of whitefish declined between 1941 and 1965. Then the fishery collapsed. In the 1940s, the average nine-year-old whitefish weighed two kilograms. By the 1970s, the average had declined to one kilogram. Observers blamed the size reduction on removal of older, bigger fish, but it also resulted from changing whitefish genetics. Young fish grew as rapidly in 1970 as they did in 1940, but the adults grew more slowly. In the 1950s, nets caught fish aged two years and up. In the 1970s, nets caught fish aged seven years and up. The 5.5-inch holes in nets had created a size threshold beyond which fish grew at their peril. Similarly, the average size of fish in populations of Atlantic cod, Gaddis morhua, declined under heavy fishing pressure. After hastening decline, adaptations to heavy fishing may have slowed the recovery of fish stocks as well. Once relieved of heavy harvesting, some commercial fisheries have rebounded more slowly than fishery managers expected. Evolution might be at least part of the explanation. One reason is the time lag built into adaptation. Natural selection acts over generations, and many commercial fish species have long generation times, so populations may adapt slowly to new environments. In this case, it appears that natural selection for larger fish requires years to reverse the effects of heavy selection for smaller fish. Another evolutionary factor is the impact of size selection on other traits that dampen population growth. Another selection may favor an individual because of a single trait. It acts on the whole organism. Traits correlated with the selected trait get pulled along with it into the next generation. Experiments with Atlantic silverside found that populations subjected to heavy harvesting of large fish displayed reductions in fecundity, egg volume, larval size at hatch, larval viability, larval growth rates, food consumption rates, and conversion efficiency, vertebral number, and willingness to forage. All these traits lower the ability of a population to rebound rapidly from from low numbers. And here's the gist of... Some of why I'm sharing those technical details with you to give you a sense of the background that goes into the analysis that I bring to the way I'm putting the world together to give you this sense that there is so much to hope for and to understand and to be a student of. Fisheries offer us a chance to see how anthropogenic evolution in populations of other species can circle back to affect human experience. And I'm suggesting we can send that circle spiraling upward into regenerative growth. The cod of the North Atlantic have been famous for centuries for their productivity and heavily fished as a result but a spike in harvests came with the arrival of larger trawlers after World War II. The average size of cod populations near the Canadian coast decreased, probably because of a combination of evolution and removal of older fish. In the 1980s, fishers responded by illegally lining their nets with smaller mesh nets. This response hastened the collapse of the fishery, and the Canadian government had little choice but to declare a moratorium on fishing in 1992. But the stocks did not rebound as hoped, and the government closed the fishery in 2003. Plummeting catches in the late 1980s set in motion, and the 1992 moratorium accelerated a variety of societal effects in Newfoundland fishing villages. Unemployment rose, reaching 43% in one headland, and brought stress in its wake. Young adults moved away from their villages more often, leaving smaller and older populations behind, and the remaining young people stayed in school longer than their parents. Fishers turned their attention to catching a more diverse range of species, especially invertebrates, shrimp and scallop. But technology-intensive invertebrate fishing, created fewer jobs than cod fishing, so the outlook for full, buyout, full employment remained dim. So here we go, let's wrap this section up for you. Salmon, cod, and silverside are hardly alone. A 2007 study of fish invertebrates and terrestrial vertebrates found that human hunting and fishing have created size-dependent selection in populations of 108 to 136 wild species. In most cases, these practices select against the traits people want, usually bigger animals. Here's the crux of it, right? If all we do is less voraciously, consumptively, and destructively harvest wild food and wild fish. Don't let the industrialists overfish and throw away enough of a bycatch to feed the entire country of China, but actually enforce decent international fishing laws and discontinue from trawling nets and letting industrial fisheries destroy our oceans and get plastic out of the ocean by making it out of plants. That's all. Very simple. Don't let industrialists run your fisheries, and your fisheries will, instead of selecting against the traits people want, which are usually bigger, we can select for that desired trait, once again, of bigger fish. And it will come about. A strategy informed by evolutionary ideas might reverse this effect by forcing hunters and fishers to catch only small or mid-sized individuals and leave the largest behind to reproduce. This practice needs to be brought into the management circles of white-tailed deer hunting in the Northeast. We need to make a rule that no hunter is allowed to kill big Old bucks with many points and can only hunt middle-aged and younger bucks and does. The older members of herd species play a very important role in population control, health, and the genetic integrity of the herd. When they are hunted out, you have population spikes, herd imbalances in their behavior, and a decline in their genetic integrity from overbreeding. We can draw several lessons from bison, mastodons, elephants, and fish. First, human beings seem to have changed some populations of organisms so radically that today we consider them to be different species from their ancestors. With bison, the selection came in the form of hunting. Second, we have done the converse, Eliminated species by driving them extinct. So human beings have played the role of the alpha and omega of evolutionary forces. Third, people have been evolutionary forces for a long time. We probably have been shaping bison, as well as North American sheep, elk, moose, muskox, bears, antelope, and wolves, for as long as 12,000 years. Fourth, Technology is an important variable in anthropogenic evolution because it can affect survival so dramatically. The introduction of the rifle and the railroad accelerated the devastation of millions of bison on the Great Plains. Fifth, reducing populations to small sizes has encouraged evolution via the founder effect and genetic drift. Sixth, Intensive selection may have played a role in the collapse of fisheries, an important source of food for a growing world population, and slowed their recovery once fishing pressure lifted. But seventh, evolutionary history offers lessons useful to policymakers. We make choices that influence evolution in populations of other species. And that is still our power is to change our choice, change our behavior, and change the future of generations to be born. We make choices that influence evolution in populations of other species. Evolutionary history can help us understand why people made some choices in the past and see the impact of those choices. By linking the social and biological It can help make clear to policymakers the value of making different choices in the future, and might I add, the necessity. In the case of fishery management, evidence suggests that current policies have the opposite effect of that intended. Taking evolution into account, as some biologists have suggested, might lead to a reversal of policies that encourage depletion of the traits we most desire in other species, Hunters and fishers were not alone in encouraging undesired traits in populations of species they killed. In other words, by overhunting and overfishing, they selected for inferior genetics and smaller individuals. So did eradicators, as we shall see. What I would like to share with you next is thinking about our evolution and our co-evolution. An understanding that, in fact, it is critical to realize that we would not be here now thinking about and talking about what our future holds without the understanding, apprehension, and use of fire. Fire is foundational to our identity, and it is still, in many ways, one of those rich, deep mysteries of our past that we can open our minds and hearts up to and wonder about how have we come to be such an interesting and expansive species that still has so much to learn about who we are, where we come from, and so much to learn about where we can go on such a diverse and complex planet. Very interesting to realize that, in fact, people really didn't think for a long time in evolution that cooking food was a significant part of what it is that brought our species about. But one of my favorite books on this is called How Cooking Made Us Human, Catching Fire. Here's a little bit from his intro on this. In the past half century, ideas suggesting how the control of fire might have influenced human behavior or evolution, have been proposed by writers in physical anthropology, archaeology, and sociology, but such analyses have been tentative, leaving it to the specialized field of cooking history to provide thoughts as bold as those of Brillat Sovereign. In 1998, cooking historian Michael Simons combined intellectual ingredients from a range of disciplines and based on the idea that cooking affects many aspects of life, from nutrition to society, he made a stronger claim than any before him. Simons concluded, Cooking is the missing link, defining the human essence. I pin our humanity on cooks. In a 2001 book on the history of food, historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto likewise declared cooking an index of the humanity of humankind, but neither these authors nor any other writer advocating the importance of cooking understood how cooking affects the nutritional quality of food. Critical questions were left untouched, such as whether humans are evolutionarily adapted to cooked food, or how cooking had its supposed effects on making us human. Or when cooking evolved, the result was a series of ideas that, however intriguing, were not tied down to biological reality. They suggested that cooking had shaped us, but they did not say why or when or how. This is a way to find out whether cooking is as biolog- there is a way to find out whether cooking is as biologically insignificant as Darwin implied, or as central to humanity as Simons asserts. We need to know what cooking does. Cooked food does many familiar things. It makes our food safer, creates rich and delicious tastes, and reduces spoilage. Heating can allow us to open, cut, or mash tough foods. But none of these advantages is as important as a little appreciated aspect. Cooking increases the amount of energy our bodies obtain from our food. The extra energy gave the first cooks biological advantages. They survived and reproduced better than before. Their genes spread. Their bodies responded by biologically adapting to cooked food shaped by natural selection to take maximum advantage of the new diet. There were changes in anatomy, physiology, ecology, life history, psychology, and society. Fossil evidence indicates that this dependence arose not just some tens of thousands of years ago, or even a few hundred thousand, but right back at the beginning of our time on Earth, at the start of human evolution, by the habilene that became Homo erectus. Brillat, Savarin, and Simons were right to say that we have tamed nature with fire. We should indeed pin our humanity on Cook's. Those claims constitute the cooking hypothesis. They say humans are adapted to eating cooked food in the same essential way as cows are adapted to eating grass, or fleas to sucking blood, or any other animal to its signature diet. We are tied to our adapted diet of cooked food, and the results pervade our lives from our bodies to our minds. We humans are the cooking apes, the creatures of the flame. So then today, I'm going to wrap up with just a few pieces from a topic I'm going to go more in depth to. And that is Hoyuk, one of the first sites where human beings appear, as far as we've found archaeologically so far, on the many continents around the earth. This place in ancient Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, is considered to be one of the very first human settlements, along with Gobekli Tepe. These two sites are looked at for an archetypical understanding of who we are and where we come from. So as I say, these vast oversimplifications that I started out this podcast critiquing from cosmological people sitting in the seat of academia that suggest that somehow it's really simple to assert that we should just abandon this very beautiful and multifaceted tapestry of our life and evolutionary history on Earth and just begin to prepare for a trajectory where we go move somewhere else. It both is something that is so far off the mark and misguided that I wanted to speak to it, and why I want to share with you in this podcast so much of the evidence from which my alternative viewpoint comes, which is that in fact... Our best hope and opportunity lies in becoming better stewards of the Earth. So as we look into the evolutionary history of our species and we begin to ask questions about who we are, where we've come from, and about this vast array of beautiful, spectacular allies who have joined us in our lives, all of the domesticated and wild animals who we've cultivated positive relations with and all of the plants. It looks like when we go back to Chahatokoyak and Gobekli Tepe, that in fact what we're seeing are cultures which are described contrary to this very stratified society in which we find ourselves today. These first human settlements of five to nine thousand people in the plains of Anatolia were what archaeologists are finding vast evidence for aggressively egalitarian, is what Ian Hodder, the head archaeologist today of Chahatokoyuk, described as a culmination of many finds they have made. No central hierarchy, no councils, no neighborhoods. The whole of Chahatokoyuk is one big family. And it looks like To wrap up for today's podcast, and I'm going to get into some more about this site and this history that happens here, because it is so rich and so informative of who we are, where we've come from, and where it is that we would like to go. There is very clear evidence that, in fact, the domestication of cattle was something that happened for the first time at Chahatohoyuk, for the European species. There's another species that was domesticated in, in Africa independently. And this variety that comes from the Anatolian region, domesticated by the residents of Chahatokoyok, primarily was domesticated as a result of initially having a lot of ritual and a lot of religious sacred activities that were done with wild animals, where people would play games and dress up and tease and taunt, and this is found through elaborate drawings on the walls of the sacred doma spaces that were the first houses ever built that we study and dig more into to get a sense of who we are and our heritage of how we, in effect, domesticated ourselves through the ritualistic creation of settlement spaces, well before we domesticated any large-scale populations of plants or animals. And so Chahatokoyuk is evidence to us that, in fact, the first larger human settlements were non-hierarchical, completely egalitarian, and that the purpose for domesticating and the process of domesticating one of the core domesticates of the European Assemblance, being the cow and cattle, was primarily due to ritualistic, religious, shamanistic, magical traditions that emerged into an intimate relationship from which flowered the domestication of both eating meat varieties of cattle and, very curiously and quite simultaneously, for dairy uses, much of that dairy being used in the plaster of the structures. So thanks so much for listening. I'll have more to share with you next week in my next podcast for today. Enjoy our life together on Earth. And I look forward to our continuing co-evolutionary development through this conversation and hearing back from you as to thoughts and ways that we could make this all come about so much faster. Thanks for listening.